Welcome to Heroine City, the podcast shining a light on women in history and all their glorious shapes and forms, efforts, errors and eras. I'm Lindsay Shaw and today we are continuing on our journey into finding out about the pioneering courtesan Kitty Fisher. In part one of our Kitty Fisher two-parter, we were joined by author Joanne Major. Our expert today is historian Cindy McCreary. joined the Department of History at the University of Sydney in 2002 after teaching at the University of Oxford and the University of Newcastle, Australia. She majored in humanities at Yale before specialising in 18th century British history with a focus on visual culture in her master's and doctorate degrees at Oxford. Cindy developed her interest in visual and material culture of both the Maritime British Empire and British royalty during postdoctoral fellowships at the National Maritime Museum, Greenwich, University of South Wales, Sydney and Paul Mellon Centre, London. Welcome to Heroin City. Cindy. Thank you for having me, Lindy. Absolute pleasure. I found you online at the Oxford Dictionary of Biography because you have penned the entry for Kitty Fisher. Tell me the journey to becoming the person that writes the entry to, to something like that. Yeah, so that came about because of my PhD research. I was a university student in the UK at Oxford doing history, and I was looking at the way that women in 18th century England were represented in cartoons and satirical prints. And through that research, I came across Kitty Fisher. And not much was known about her. And I remember thinking when I took on the entry in the Oxford Dictionary National Biography that this is going to be quite a challenge, and it was. And to be honest, I still feel that there's so much we don't know about her. But I think one of the good things about that project, the Oxford Dictionary Biography, is that it was trying to reinvent that project, which had begun in the late 19th century as the Oxford, just the Dictionary of National Biography, and to try to make it more representative of society and in particular to include more women. So I was very pleased that we were able to say more about Kitty Fisher, even though she still remains somewhat a woman of history. Yeah, right. It's tricky because obviously we're talking about someone that had a a very public persona, which in itself garnered exaggerated retellings of events that may or may not be true. So yeah, we'll get to that. Could you, for the listeners that don't really have an idea of who she is, or maybe have heard the name but don't quite know where they've heard it from, could you give us a nutshell version of who she is and why we should know more about her? Yeah, great question, Lindsay. So Kitty Fisher is, um, I think, a really important example of a woman who really created what we would today call her own brand. She was someone who was really born into obscurity. As far as we know, her parents came from quite a poor background. Her father at some point died, leaving her mother a widow. And we're talking about a society, 18th century England, where the options for women were extremely limited. And so it was not possible for women to get an education, for women to enter a profession. And so for young women with family support, like Kitty Fisher, unless they were able to marry and to marry someone who could support them, and although that eventually does happen for for Kitty Fisher, there were very few options about making her own way in the world. And in fact, what we know is that many women then did what we would today call sex work, not necessarily as a full-time occupation, but certainly as a way to supplement income with other forms of income. And we know that Kitty initially worked in a milliner shop in what we today call the fashion industry. It was not uncommon for young women from that background to find themselves from time to time needing to return to prostitution to supplement themselves. But what Kitty did was quite different. And what she did was to create this brand of what I'd call audacious beauty, which got her noticed throughout elite London society. And I really want to stress how unusual this was and remarkable for someone of her background to do that. She wasn't an aristocrat. She was not born into a well-off family. And yet she managed at the height of her career 
to be someone who was a household name, not just in London, but in, um, throughout the continent in Europe. She managed to gain the attention and admiration of royal princes in London, of aristocrats, but also, I think, quite importantly, members of the public, so that ordinary people had heard the name Kitty Fisher, even if they hadn't met her. So she's really quite, I think, a remarkable person for her period. It was a short but bright career. She was so young. You have to put that into context. I mean, obviously, you can look back and think that childhood was shorter and people grew up faster. But my goodness, she was still in her teens when the height of her fame hit. What I like about your research and what's happening now with Kitty is that people are starting to look further into her life and digging out a more three-dimensional picture of her and giving her the credit for the agency that she will have had within that world. Georgian London is an endlessly intriguing place and Kitty's role within that really stands out for exactly those reasons you've just mentioned. Let's talk about the sources then because to find that three-dimensional picture, I mean, she jumps out anyway because you've got the Reynolds portraits, the Daniel Hone portraits and more and there are some contested portraits. But as you've alluded to, there are also pamphlets and press articles. Her name gets mentioned a lot, but within that, how do you start to find Kitty's voice, if we can at all, and how do we piece together a more in-depth picture of who she was? So this question, Lindsay, is absolutely central to anyone working, not just on Kitty Fisher, but on, I'd say, women in this period, but also more generally, the vast majority of the population. Unless you're talking about aristocratic men or people who are very well off, who are able to leave their own personal records, things like letters, diaries. Welcome to Heroin City, the podcast shining a light on women in history and all their glorious shapes and forms, efforts, errors and errors. I'm Lindsay Shaw and today we are talking about the 18th century courtesan and pioneering pinup, Kitty Fisher. Now, this is... I'm Lindsay Shaw and today we are continuing on our journey into finding out about the pioneering courtesan, Kitty Fisher. I'm Lindsay Shaw and today we are continuing on I'm Lindsay Shaw and today we are continuing on our journey into finding out about the 18th century courtesan, pioneer and pinup, and some would say the first celebrity in the modern sense of the word, Kitty Fisher. In part one of our Kitty Fisher we were joined by author Joanne Major. In the second part, our expert today is historian Cindy McCreary. Professor Cindy McCreary joined the Department of History at University of Sydney in 2002. After teaching at the University of Oxford and the University of Newcastle in Australia, born in Sydney and raised in Australia, Singapore and Hawaii, she majored in humanities at Yale before specialising in 18th century British history. British paintings. Born in my argument is they used Professor the painting, which is Professor Cindy McCreary joined the Department of History House. at that was the University first collaboration of Sydney and the first attempt to sell the after teaching at the University of Oxford my argument and the University is that the second of Newcastle, one Australia. What they were doing and dialed it up Born to in 11. Sydney and raised in the Australia, Singapore and Hawaii. What they did she majored in humanities at Yale before specialising in 18th century British history. British history. With a focus on visual culture in masters and painting when it came to how they handled it and the money they made from the prince. Cindy developed her interest in visual and material culture of both the Maritime British Empire and British royalty during postdoctoral fellowships at the National Maritime Museum, Greenwich, University of South Wales, Sydney and Paul Mellon Centre Welcome through the gates of heroin. What makes her a pioneer in that sense? Well, I think for me, Lindsay, what Welcome distinguishes Kitty Fisher from other women of her Welcome age, to her period, City. is the Cindy. variety of media across which she was able to promote herself. 
and images of her. So we're talking about portraits, oil portraits, and also not just any old portraits, but we're talking about collaborations with Joshua Reynolds, later first uh, president of, of the New Royal Academy of Arts, himself a really important exemplar of someone who's promoting British art, British portraiture, and really through his own career, is really creating what will become a very popular genre, namely portraits of elite women. By the end of the century, you know, any woman who sees herself as a member of the elite will, will want to have her portrait painted by Sir Joshua Reynolds. So this also, I think, shows Kitty Fisher's own savviness in recognising that in Reynolds, she had someone who was really going to be a very powerful advocate for her. But it's not just portraits. You mentioned engravings. That's of particular interest to me. And I think, although not that many people would have seen the original oil portraits, that Reynolds produces, many more people will have seen and had an impression of Kitty Fisher through the Mezzotints. And we know that Reynolds was very clever in his engagement with engravers to make sure that his paintings, which of course, there weren't that many copies of an individual painting, but they were reproduced and circulated through Mezzotints. And I think that's where this partnership was particularly successful. And that example you give of the image of Kitty Fisher after Reynolds' portrait with the beautiful lace sleeves holding a letter, that becomes not only popular in its own right, but it becomes a model for other portraits of other women who actually choose in consultation with painters and gravers that image to represent themselves. It's seen as such a successful female image. But it's not just engravings or paintings. We know that Kitty Fisher also appears in caricatures, in cartoons. She appears in poetry, in newspapers. There are images of her with music. She really kind of cuts across a whole range of 18th century print culture. And this is, of course, a kind of golden age of British print, right? This is when there are new markets being developed for all kinds of varieties of printed texts and images. And Kitty's absolutely at the forefront of that way. Yes, absolutely. It's a perfect storm of, of things that happen simultaneously that create this, like you've alluded to, this everlasting persona, because we're still here nearly 300 years on talking about her and still trying to get to the bottom of it, which is fascinating in itself, because that's how alluring the image is, the persona. So obviously, there's a whole world there that we could look into when it comes to what people wrote about, what people read about, what gossip, the press. And, and that Georgian world. But what was your angle when it came to looking at that as a, a source? This is something I do take very seriously. I think print culture is a really important way of kind of interrogating and understanding this society. So I don't shy away from it. I don't see it as in, in, in any way a kind of inferior type of evidence. What, however, I do want to emphasize is that, again, we have to be careful. We have to remember this is a commercial culture. We have to remember these objects are being created um, primarily to sell. And I think that that is something that's really important to remember. We also don't know the detail of Kitty Fisher's, you know, business and other relationships with the artists and others who are creating these images of her. And I think we need to be cautious about that. As much as I'd love to say that she's an equal partner with Reynolds and that they're sharing the profits, I don't know that we have evidence to that effect. And I think we need to be careful about what we claim there. But I think what we can say is that compared to other women, other courtesans, other women who are in the public eye, what seems pretty clear is that Kitty Fisher is remarkable for the range of printed mediums that she features in, but also that she manages, I think, quite cleverly to develop what we today call a brand that is effective, that's enduring, and that manages to combine what we today call kind of media saturation, but still retain, I think, a sense of elegance and a sense of unique identity. And I think that's quite important. And I think that suggests to me that this is someone who really does have or, or gains or learns the value of paying careful attention to your own brand and image and building that quite carefully. I spoke with Joanne Major about some of these details yesterday and what was interesting and to me especially was the point where she does go to Reynolds or her and Reynolds come together it's just after the juvenile adventures of Kitty Fisher has been 
released to the public. And after she's put in the advert herself, the open letter in the public advertiser to counter some of the press reports. So exactly what you've just said there, it's interesting that she understood that these paintings were going to balance out, give her the elegance, the air of an elite courtesan when the press were pushing for a, a more bawdy kind of lower end of the scale persona for her. So the juvenile adventures of Kitty Fisher are very interesting in themselves, aren't they? Tell me what you think about that. I just want to say a bit about the letter. I mean, one of the things that is often the case in this period is that the letters are not quite what they seem. In other words, that we might assume that the letter is by Kitty Fisher, it's signed Kitty Fisher, and that it's designed, as we did see it on face value, as a sort of protest. But there's another way to read it. First of all, it might not have been placed by her. I think we have to be careful about that. Even though it has her name, that doesn't necessarily mean it was done with her authorization or by herself personally. She may or may not have given permission for that to appear. But the other point is it could also just be seen as actually a rather clever way of advertising, of actually reminding readers of all the different ways that she has been represented. And and yes, that might suggest that she's not concerned about her bawdy reputation, which might seem a bit odd. But, you know, I think it, there's also this, this insistence here on understanding that all publicity is in a sense good publicity. And of course, the challenge that Kitty Fisher and all individuals in the public eye face, but particularly women, is that there's a very short half-life, right? There's a very short period in which these individuals can maintain a public interest and attention. And if that's not regularly refilled and there's not little tidbits released, the danger is that they lose public attention and that they become less interesting and perhaps less desirable. So I think that's another way of reading that letter. I think I think we just have to be a bit careful about, you know, taking any of this at face value. But again, I think it's whoever said it in, in the paper, it, it's a beautiful example of the understanding of how keeping someone in the public eye is a great way to keep their profile red hot. And that's another way that she seems so relevant today because, you know, nothing's really changed. The medium may have changed, but at the same time, it's still exactly the same today. She, at one point as well, steps back from the public eye. Joanne argues that she steps back for a second, I think it's a couple of years, and then has the Nathaniel Hone portrait painted. That one's the next one that's created. And I think as an attempt to, again, put her back into the centre of society and into the centre of this kind of furore. What is interesting, though, I think, is that, yes, it was a short period that she was in the public eye. However, someone like Casanova, for example, was talking about her nearly two decades after that. And we're still talking about her now. So there was something that definitely caught the imagination. And Casanova himself, I mean, we don't know whether he actually did meet her or not. But it's interesting, again, that she was someone he felt worthy of a mention in his memoirs when he talks about coming over to London. So even after a couple of decades, she was still being talked about. Yeah. And it's also a good point to note that Casanova wouldn't have mentioned her if he didn't also understand that this would also make him look good. I mean, he's a great self-fashioner, promoter. I think that's more evidence of her stature that he would decide to include her. Yeah. Joanne has another interesting argument that she thinks that he conflated the Fanny Murray banknote story with Kitty, whether purposefully or whether his recollection was cloudy. And I think that that's really interesting because up until this point, until your work and Joanne's work, I think people have just taken that verbatim. It sounds good. It's a great story. And people have taken it for face value. To me, that's Casanova all over. I mean, this is someone who loves to have the great Bolmo, and that tells us more about Casanova than it does perhaps about Kitty Fisher. But I agree that it is very much part of the myth of Kitty Fisher. Exactly. I argue that the Cleopatra dissolving the pearl painting was kind of the, the beginning of that because both Kitty and Reynolds were super aware of the, the comparison they were making to the Egyptian queen, but also the story about Cleopatra dissolving the pearl being alluded to combining all of these elements within Kitty's persona that then get 
repeated one way or another down the line. Can I just say something on that? I, what I think is really interesting about that portrait is that at the time, Cleopatra didn't have the status that she does later on. So in the next century, in the 19th century, Cleopatra's rediscovered. Um, and then, of course, as we the 21st century, reading things like Elizabeth Taylor's portrayal in films, Cleopatra becomes this great sort of sensational historical figure. But I think when Kitty Fisher and Reynolds are working on this portrait. Yes, of course, there's Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra, but really it's not until, in my view, you get to the end of the 18th century and Napoleon's invasion of Egypt that we really have this kind of reflection in European culture of an interest again in Egypt. So I think it's really interesting that, that Reynolds and Kitty Fisher are talking about Cleopatra then, because that's before the kind of the main reflection and reinterest in ancient Egypt. Yeah, that is fascinating. Another way that they were insightful and pioneering, that's great to know. You do talk a, a lot more, and this is great for me when I'm doing my research, to see that there is a lot more about the parish records and basic facts of her life, where she was born, where she was married, all of those kind of things, which I think up until this point, I've been looking at Kitty for a couple of years just because she's someone that I've always been interested in. And it's now that I think we're piecing together a better view of her timeline. And also, you know, the details of her death, which I think is another really interesting thing to discuss because people just, again, took for face value the idea that she died of lead makeup poisoning. Whereas now it's, we understand that it was complications perhaps from that and she died of TB. Talk to us about those kind of sources and, and your journey with those. When I had the invitation to write the article for the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, I mean, they were quite clear, and I think rightly, that, you know, you have to be able to document the claims you're making. Um, and so I did go back to the, you know, the parish records for her birth, marriage and death. But then, because there is this paucity of personal records, records that she left, I did have to rely quite a lot on printed sources and visual sources that were created in and after her lifetime. Um, and in particular, the memoirs of people, not just Casanova, but other people, men and women who, who mention her in their letters and memoirs. This is, again, a challenge. And it's a challenge not just for anyone working on Kitty Fisher, but for women in the 18th century and in other periods as well. That a lot of what we know about women is what men say about them or other women. That makes things difficult. So the way I sort of handled this in the essay for the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography was really trying to be quite clear when, if I was quoting someone like Horace Bleakley, I would say, you know, Bleakley claimed that quote, not assuming that that was necessarily the full source. And I think that's how good historical research has to proceed. We acknowledge our sources, we're upfront with what we know, but we don't try and overclaim. It was alleged that rather than Kitty Fisher thought this or did this. That's, I think, where we have to really be careful. Absolutely. Because she's so rich with people talking about her, I think piecing together that, you know, but understanding that it's coming from these different sources still gives us a lot, especially when compared with other aspects that you can evidence. Again, I'll go back to Joanne, but she mentions that the juvenile adventures of Kitty Fisher have been kind of overlooked in the sense that it was a satire. It was something that was made commercially to make money. But she said it's actually rich with pointers to things that then you can go and verify, which is interesting because, again, it points to what you're saying about us developing a way to find women in the sources slightly differently, you know, reading against the grain thinking well why are they saying that and then triangulate and find the evidence that then points to more of a hypothesis that, that gives us the, the, the voice of that person or at least a better idea of what was actually happening so regardless of where it's come from I think it always gives us 
more clues as to what was actually going on. What would you say about that? The comparison in the press with Maria Gunning, one of the Gunning sisters, I think is interesting from a a modern perspective because it still happens to this day where women or, or celebrities are pitched against each other as if there's a rivalry happening, whether it is or it isn't, it sells papers and it's something that piques interest. And also to the end, because tragically they both died prematurely from, it seems, the same causes. But Again, it was tying their stories neatly into a moral ending. What do you say about that? And what would you say about the fact that we're now looking at it from a slightly different perspective? I think the comparison between Kitty Fisher and Maria Gunning or the Gunning sisters is really interesting because, of course, with the Gunning sisters, you get the similar story, but a story that is, on the other hand, seen to remain on the line of moral behaviour. In other words, the Gunning sisters were an Irish family of beauties, they were known, the beautiful Gunning sisters, who, like Kitty Fisher but really more through more straightforward marriage, uh, managed to maintain a great sense of celebrity and were admired and talked about. And this is in the same period as Kitty Fisher. As you, as you say, Maria Gunning, I think, dies in 1760, I think seven years before Kitty Fisher. But, you know, we're really talking about contemporaries. And I agree that this supposed rivalry between the two women where Kitty Fisher is said to have went out by Lady Coventry, who's Maria Gunning, who her dressmaker was, she kind of said, oh, well, you have to ask your husband because, you know, he gave me this dress, you know, thereby scandalizing everyone. But I mean, that kind of rivalry, although that may well be complete fiction, I think it does point to the way that women in the public eye in 18th century Britain absolutely seen, particularly by a male audience, as, as necessarily in competition with one another. And that this is the idea that these beauties are competing for husbands, for, for male attention, for public gaze. And, you know, there is, of course, I think, some truth to that. Um, but again, as you pointed out, we do have to be incredibly careful about how we interpret these stories and particularly how we interpret the stories of their death. As you say, both Maria Gunning, Levin Coventry and Kitty Fisher are said to have died from the effects of this white lead-based face paint, which was very common, which was seen as sort of essential for young women in particular to preserve what was seen as, as a beautiful visage. And then on top of this sort of very, from our perspective, quite stark white face paint, red rouge would be applied on top of that. And as we know, that lead-based makeup can cause lead poisoning. I think that the idea of luxury is also really important to understand. This is a period where there is a great moral panic about the idea of luxury. And in particular, the idea that women and young women in particular are becoming so absorbed with the idea of material possessions, of beauty, of changing their natural features, that they are seen to be not only endangering their health and well-being, but are really losing what is seen to be the proper decorum and chastity and humility of a good young Christian Englishwoman. So both Maria Gunning and Kitty Fisher challenge those stereotypes about how a young woman and particularly how a young wife should behave. But they're also, I think, pitted against each other in this rivalry. While I think he's largely fictional, it does point to an essential truth, which is the way that women are seen sort of competing in the kind of public sphere for male attention. That's really interesting when you were saying about them pushing the idea of how they're supposed to behave. There's a story about Kitty drinking tea in the theatre that then gets copied because people are like, well, if she did it and got attention, you know, that then we can do it too. Little things like that. But also that's evident in the fact that her and Reynolds coming together and having such a great collaborative relationship because he was definitely someone who was attracted to those kind of women who 
push the boundaries who were unconventional and helped them in their unconventionality you know the way he displayed their portraits in exhibitions etc so that's wonderful I mean it's one of the reasons again why I think that she stands out so much is that she wasn't afraid of pushing the boundaries in fact she welcomed it because she knew it would get her attention but what's interesting is she did come from a different background than the Gunning sisters which gave her that extra edge I think but also this is conjecture but perhaps that was one of the reasons why she was so loved by the public you know a tradesman's daughter she wasn't upper class she wasn't aristocratic so I think that that's another thing that you can see repeated today and also the idea that people women girls are preoccupied with the way they look you look at the internet now you look at Botox fillers things like that nothing's changed really that's what's fascinating about that are there any lessons to be learned about the way we sometimes take nice neat bows when it comes to the end of a story and sometimes don't look further I think for a long time I would read excerpts about Kitty next to a painting and these things were (laughs) repeated verbatim as if they were true and not contested for example the banknote story for example Casanova meeting her and definitely the way she met her end. Her life full stop, I think, is an, a lesson in how not to take everything you've read at face value and to look at as many sources as possible and try and make your own mind up within that. So I think she does engage critical thinking. What would you say about that? Yes, no, I agree. And I think the other thing to keep in mind when, when we're looking at sources and stories about her is, is thinking about what are the agendas here and who's behind this and what kind of values are being reflected here. In many ways, I, th- I think that it's only recently that we have started to query how women, and particularly women who are seen as unrespectable, how they're represented. And it's only now that we're starting to push back against the assumptions, the generalizations that are made, and starting to look for the individual behind the the scandal or the the huge generalizations. And I think with Kitty Fisher, the other thing that really stands out to me is that she clearly had a remarkable sense of humor and a great sense of spot. She really didn't mind being people, but I think she also didn't take herself too seriously. And I think that's, you know, quite a refreshing thing to note in someone who was so in the public eye. 100% and it's something I mentioned yesterday. I think that she was able to carry the persona that they created together, her and Joshua Reynolds in this case. Not only did they have to come up with this, but she had to carry it in public she definitely had the ability to do that and I don't think that's a mean feat I think she will have definitely had that sense of humor had that ability for people to be drawn to her it's one thing having this public persona it's another thing carrying it off and she definitely seemed to be able to do that with Applem so I think that's really important to remember um, when we're trying to see her agency within this you've got to understand that it wouldn't have lasted as long as it had they they wouldn't have carried on talking about her the way they did if she wasn't able to carry it off whenever she was in public i consider her story to be a success story even though she died young she was able to marry well which is interesting as well i think it showed that she had an awareness that she needed to get out as fast as she could you know she lived the life but she also knew what the aim was and the aim was to marry well and find security in that way would you see it as a success story i know what i definitely do no i would and i would say it's not just that she knew that she needed to get out and marry well but that she was able to carry it off right? i mean that, that was remarkable because this is a society which was all too cruel and harsh towards women who were seen to have transgressed particular morals and to marry you know she does a respectable a well-off family it was really, I think, a testament to her capacity to really appeal to individuals on a, on a really quite deep level. In other words, her husband doesn't marry her because she's beautiful, and he certainly doesn't marry her because of her past. He marries her because of what I imagine is her incredibly magnetic character. 
her sense of humour. Imagine she was a great raconteur and had some wonderful stories. He was a very, I think, probably quite a warm person. I mean, that's why he would marry her. It would not be because of her career as a courtesan, quite quite the opposite. You'd expect him to have her as a mistress if that was what he was interested in. But but in fact, she she does that remarkable thing of shifting from being a courtesan to being a married woman. I would say that's a remarkable success. I would, however, acknowledge that in the kind of context of you know 18th century Britain, 18th century society, Kitty Fisher, like like you know the vast majority of people, I think it was a very difficult society and I think that her success needs to be measured against what I imagine was a continual source of stress of anxiety of constant work to keep herself afloat and to keep herself in the public eye and that fear that I, th- I think many people in the public eye have that it may all fall over tomorrow that there may be no more interest and no more income the society with absolutely no safety net there's no pension you know there's no old age retirement fund there is nothing for someone like her. And I think that would have been incredibly difficult, if certainly common, life experience. But the fact that she managed to keep going, to definitively marry, I, I agree with you that it's a success story, but it's a success story in, a, in what is, I think, a society that we need to remember was a very tough environment for a woman um, you know, to operate in. Absolutely. It's a really good point, actually. And you mentioned earlier, her father had passed away and she was, Joanne Major argues, looking after the family financially too. She was the eldest child. So she definitely would have felt that pressure. She did marry well and he was an MP. So exactly what you're saying. She wasn't on paper marriage material for someone who was already in the public eye himself. Definitely indicates that there was a love match or at least a, a genuine connection between the two. Obviously, people were drawn to her and that's really interesting. I'd really like that you're underlining that because I think sometimes we do forget the momentum and the stress levels and she was in the thick of it. So she would have seen other women, their stories end very differently. She grew up in the centre of London. She would have grown up near Covent Garden. And it's very interesting that you mention it from a perspective of motivation, because I think that's something that we can sometimes forget from our modern lens, why, how life and death it was for people and how very easily it could go wrong (laughs) it could go down a different route let's talk about her legacy we've definitely talked a little bit about it do you think she was aware of leaving a legacy at the time she seemed fun loving and she definitely understood that these paintings would have an afterlife but do you think she was aware of any kind of legacy she was leaving behind as a historian it's hard to answer that Mm -hmm. i don't want to pretend that i know kitty fisher's mind or views i think yes I think that for someone to have gone to such effort over, you know, a seven-year period of building up that public persona, and as you say, she was aware that portraits were, were enduring. I think that she did feel that she was leaving a legacy, and I think, importantly, she was very keen that she, as much as possible, controlled it. And so I think that through the portraits, through the prints, I think that she absolutely wanted to be remembered um, and not to be forgotten. On that note, in what way do you think she is relevant today? Goodness, I think that she is absolutely important as an example of how women negotiate the incredibly complex sexual politics of the society they live in. I think in many ways that the issues she faced are relevant today, the issues of of women maintaining independent career, independent identity, of maintaining control over their money, of their finances, of negotiating the incredibly severe expectations about female beauty. These are all highly relevant today. And I think we gain a lot by reflecting on her, even when we're talking about the issue of women today, particularly in the areas we know of of social media and the expectations being placed, particularly on younger and younger women to kind of establish this brand, if you will, that that has to be successful. I think that she's a really relevant 
historical figure when we're thinking about our own society today. Yeah, so do I, absolutely. Do you know of any screen depictions of Kitty that have been made? The only one I've read about, and I have to confess I haven't seen this, but apparently there's a 1945 film. As a historian, it's interesting that the 18th century is in vogue again, we see a lot of programs and Netflix, etc. about the 18th century. I do think she is someone who has been, like like other figures um, from this period, and fairly ignored. I think there's absolutely scope for programs about her. There's so much scope, and just from the for the reasons that you alluded to then, she's so relevant to today. There's so many comparisons, so many parallels. I think she's right for the picking and deserves to be known in that way as well, I think. Do you have a favourite fact or anecdote of Kitty's? I don't know that it's really a fact or anecdote, but I just want to get back to that Reynolds portrait of her in the lace with the lace sleeves and the letter and the pearls. That image, because that one is one that when I was a PhD student, I think first attracted me to her. And what's really interesting is to think about that, how that image of Kitty then is picked up by other individuals. And so if, if you look at the British Museum, which is, of course, you know, digitized its print collection now, you've got wonderful images of other 18th century women who are copying Kitty. And I think, you know, you know, since imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Mm. And that to me suggests just how it wasn't just men who were enchanted by her, but women as well. And I think that's worth kind of keeping in mind about her. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, I always say the camera never lies. And you, well, I mean, that's obviously a, a known adage. But to me, she pops out the paintings too, which is also fascinating, isn't it? Because how is it that certain people have that ability? I mean, yes, it's the composition. Yes, it's the way it's painted. It's alluring. Reynolds knew what he was doing with that. But there's something more, isn't there? There's something more in these paintings that has kept people's attention. And yes, it is in juxtaposition with the press articles and the letters and people talking about her but there's still something in them enough for people to be imitating them then and still to be talking about them now and that is that kind of charisma that certain quality that you can't always put your finger on the other thing i like about that one is where some of the other portraits she's looking away from the viewer and it's obviously quite a stylized pose in that one she's looking at the viewer and she seems to be confident and charismatic i really like the, the fact that she's looking right at you and you feel like this is someone who really is in control of herself and of her image and of her life and her career. And that's a lovely thing to see. And she's addressing the viewer. It's very true. Going back to just what you were saying about the trend at that point to be a young, boundary-pushing, unconventional beauty, it goes back to, again, comparing her to Cleopatra in that way, isn't it? it? The debauchery of that scene, the fact that she's dissolving the pearl and then drinking it, it does point to, again, why Reynolds and hopefully Kitty, although we'll never know fully how much say she had, but she must have had conversations with him about the depiction of herself as Cleopatra. So it's something I'll definitely have a little look to. If Kitty were a superhero, what would her superpower be? Well, I think that's quite simple and that's enchantment. I mean, I think she bewitched people, um, both viewers of her paintings and her prints, but, but also the people she met. So yes, I think she was an, an enchantress. And the last one, after all your research or your time in her world, if you were able to ask Kitty a question, what would it be? It would be absolutely be about her relationship with Reynolds. How did she find him? Did he find her? Where did these ideas come from? The Cleopatra, the other the settings for these, these portraits. I mean, they are remarkable. Absolutely want to find out more about that because I think it would have been a wonderful collaboration. I would love to have been a fly on the wall when they had those discussions. Me too. Let's be clear, Reynolds painted many um, very pretty ordinary portraits of women. The ones of Kitty Fisher, I do think stand out in his career, his oeuvre. So I think we do need to give her more credit for that. He was by no means infallible. Some of his later portraits in particular are really pedestrian. 
um, and have not aged well. But I think those portraits of Kitty Fisher really um, his you know most commanding, his strongest works that have really endured, continue to really fascinate the viewer. So I, I don't think it's it's simply all up to him at all. I think her active collaboration there was really an important part of that that partnership. I think that's probably a brilliant place to stop. Thank you, Cindy, for being here. That's wonderful. It's been great to talk to you and I appreciate your time and I appreciate your work because as someone who's been looking at Kitty for a while, hoping that we can get to more of the person behind the public persona, I really appreciate the time and effort that you've put in and the work that you've done. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hi there, Lindsay here. Just wanted to remind you to please subscribe, tell your friends all about Heroin City and please share, like, follow, do all those things so that people get to know about what we're up to here and the city can grow bigger with you guys inside it. We're here bi-weekly. Please join us and don't forget to follow us on Instagram and we'll see you next time on Heroin City.